Faith is inextricably part of the human condition, that it cannot be separated from what it means to be human, that fundamentally it is an understanding that there's more to reality than the material world. God is, just that's it, God is. You don't need to finish that sentence. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today in Park City, Utah, with Reza Aslan, an Iranian-American scholar of religious studies. He's a writer, a television host, internationally known as a commentator, a professor, producer, and scholar of religions, and his number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, you may have been most likely to hear of. Reza Aslan, thank you so much for making time to speak today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. At the very first of your book, God, A Human History, which was your latest in 2017, you say that you were not from a particularly religious family, but you were fascinated by religion and spirituality. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, my mother was sort of culturally Muslim. I guess we were all culturally Muslim. I mean, so much of religious identity has to do with the way that you think of yourself in the world. And in the same way that so many Americans are culturally Christian, many Iranians are culturally Muslim. And so, you know, we would go to mosque on holidays, things like that. My father, on the other hand, was a devout atheist. He was um, he had a lot of Marxist and communist leanings, and so he never really had any great love of religion at all. Of course, in 1979, there was this massive revolution in Iran. It wasn't an Islamic revolution, but ultimately it became Islamic. And that's when we fled Iran, by the way. And I think that that's always kind of seared itself in my consciousness. I've always had a deep fascination with religion and spirituality, with metaphysics, legends, myths, superstitions, folk tales. They, it's always been so fascinating to me. And, you know, I've been blessed to be in a situation where I can actually make a living doing the things that I enjoy doing. But I, I think that if I were to say, where did the fascination come from? Probably from my childhood experiences of revolutionary Iran. And you mentioned wanting not just to know, but if you have a belief, wanting to have some sort of experience of whatever God is. When did you first start having that experience? Or or was that from the very beginning that you had a feeling or an inkling that there was something more than the material world? I feel like the feeling and the inkling was always there. What wasn't was the means to express it, the language to express it with. And then in high school, I went to an evangelical youth camp, and for the first time I was given the language to express this kind of inexpressible feeling of transcendence that I think had always been there. And that was a real turning point for me. I think it was a profound experience to be able to now have both a means of communicating something that was very difficult for me to communicate, and then also a community with which to communicate those issues. I was fascinated by this first paragraph. You are a very gifted writer. Thank you, I appreciate that. And I love this image. Would you mind just reading how you started this book? When I was a child, I thought God was a large, powerful old man who lived in the sky. 
a bigger, stronger version of my father, but with magical powers. I imagined him handsome and grizzled, his long gray hair draped over his broad shoulders. He sat on a throne and wrapped by clouds. When he spoke, his voice boomed through the heavens, especially when he was angry. And he was often angry. But he was also warm and loving, merciful and kind. He laughed when he was happy and cried when he was sad. It sort of sounds like not only fatherly, but grandfatherly figure to me. (laughs) Well, I think the point that I was trying to make with that opening is that I think most people, whether they consider themselves believers or not, probably had the same exact image of God. And indeed, that image, studies show, is fairly universal. It really doesn't matter whether you yourself were born in a religious family or it doesn't matter what part of the world you come from, doesn't matter the culture you come from. Study after study has shown that children especially when told to describe God, do so by simply describing their father, or or a father figure, I should say. For a lot of us, that image is never replaced. It's the image that we carry with us into our spiritual journeys, regardless of how deep that journey goes. And as I argue in the book, that can be kind of problematic. You mentioned that on your journey early on that you, you encounter Christianity and there's this fascination because here they've actually described God becoming man, which fits in with that. Yeah, well, so there are many, many reasons why Christianity is the world's most successful religion and I think will probably continue to be so for at least some time. But I think a big reason has to do with the fact that It answers that fundamental question of what is God, the question that all religions ask, the question that humanity has asked from the very beginning. Christianity's answer to that question is incredibly simple. God is a man. Just imagine the most perfect man, someone who's perfectly compassionate, perfectly kind, perfectly loving. It's not difficult to imagine a human being without flaws, that's God. Anyone can conceive of that kind of God, and it's an enormously appealing image of God. It's an enormously appealing definition of God. In fact, as I argue in the book, it's an image of God that's already hardwired into our brains anyway. We are compelled to think of God in human terms, whether we believe in God or not. And what Christianity does is it says, not only should you think of God in human terms, but think of God as this one specific human being that you can actually know. Certainly for a 15-year-old like myself that's sort of struggling for some idea of how to encapsulate my vague spirituality, but for anyone, that kind of definition has an incredible appeal to it. Let me ask this before I go further down the path, that we intrinsically or built in think of God in human terms. Because we're human, can we learn to think of or experience a God that's beyond human? Well, it is an involuntary impulse. It is hardwired into our brains. It is part of the cognitive functioning of our brains. 
so on the one hand, we have no choice in the matter. We, we use ourselves as the filter to understand the divine, and therefore we attribute to the divine all of our own human attributes and human emotions. In fact, we even attribute to the divine our, the color of our skin, our politics, you know, our social views. That's what we do. But we don't have to do so. It does take an enormous cognitive effort to dehumanize God, as I, as I sometimes refer to it. But I do think that it is a much healthier, much more productive, and, and much deeper form of spirituality to do so. And indeed, throughout religious history, there have been mystics and prophets and, and individuals who have um, paved the way to thinking of God, not as a divine personality, but more along the lines of the sort of creative impulse of the universe. And I think that that's the kind of God that I have come to understand, and it's the kind of God that I preach about in the book. (laughs) So as people who have mystical experience want to share that, because they can't just unplug a disc and hand it to someone, they have to put it into human words, and is that where something fails to be transmitted? Yeah, I mean, you're right, because we, we have to create a language, primarily a language of symbols and metaphors, with which to describe what is fundamentally indescribable, to talk about a being who is, if that being is anything else, quintessentially not human. So, yes, there is this conflict here about how to think, but there is also an awareness of what you are doing. So when I speak about God, I am cognizant of the fact that I am using adjectives that talk about this God in human terms, that I'm ascribing human impulses and human ideas to God. But I think, as with most things, simply beginning by being aware of what you're doing is the first step of breaking free from this kind of cage, because it is a a kind of cage. I think not only does it force us to think about God in severely limiting terms, but it also can be quite dangerous because when we start to implant our own ideas, our own prejudices, our own biases on God, we create a God who becomes basically a divine version of ourselves. You know, me, but without limitations. Me, but omniscient and omnipotent. And you don't have to be, you know, a scholar to know where this all leads. Just look around, turn on your television. You can understand why we're having these incredible conflicts of religion in all parts of the world. Because fundamentally, what these conflicts are about are not about, you know, different gods. They're just about us. We, we have applied everything that is good and bad about ourselves into our religions, and then we construct a god who looks and acts and thinks and feels just like we do. And that, to me, I think, besides, as I was saying, besides having some dangerous consequences to it, is a very, I think, shallow kind of spirituality. And so for, for me, this is, a, this is a way that I want people who are people of faith to think. This is not an, an argument against faith by any means. It's, a, it's an argument for a deeper kind of faith. Because we hear the phrase, with God on our side which implies he's 
not on the side of everyone else who's basically most of the people who have ever lived. Right. Uh, it's uh, what, I, what I like to call football talk, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, God loves our team and God hates your team. But that's how we, uh, that's how we talk. It's, it's kind of part of the human condition. A, a huge part of what it means to be human is to live in these us versus them dichotomies, whether it's you know, my cave versus your cave, or my village versus your village, or my tribe versus your tribe, or my nation versus your nation, my race versus your race, my religion versus your religion. We'll find any way to define ourselves in opposition to another. But in this case, doing so by ascribing those traits to a divine being can create horrific consequences. You mentioned then returning to Islam and finding, I should let you describe this, but, but in the book, as I recall, finding a God who was not defined in human terms and yet still human attributes like right. love or jealousy are, are, are given to this God. Yeah, that is, a, that is kind of a funny story. I mean, I left Christianity before I returned to Islam. And the reasons that I left Christianity had far more to do with the kind of Christianity that I was introduced to. The fundamentalist, evangelical kind of Christianity that I converted to is predicated fundamentally on the notion of scriptural infallibility and inerrancy. That is the foundation of evangelical Protestant Christianity. It is also absurd. It takes about five minutes of reading the Bible, something I think most Christians should do, to realize that the Bible is full of errors. It's full of mistakes. It's full of contradictions. Of course it is. It's a, a collection of writings written over thousands of years by hundreds of people. Of course it's full of errors. No one ever thought that it wouldn't be until really the beginning of the 20th century. This is, I think, a very important point for your listeners to understand because for some reason there is this idea that somehow scriptural literalism is a more traditional form of scriptural exegesis, that it's more original, if you will, when nothing could be further from the truth. The very concept of scriptural literalism is just a little bit more than a hundred years old. It simply did not exist. If you asked someone in the first century, if they read their scriptures literally, they'd have no idea what you were talking about because to them, fact and truth don't mean the same thing. That's just my little tangent. Anyway, when that became apparent to me, everything else just sort of crumbled. But when I look back on it now, I have to be honest with you, a big part of my disaffection with Christianity comes back to the definition of God. It didn't work for me. It didn't work for a lot of reasons, but one, because it just felt too limiting to think about God in these terms. Later on, I sort of went back to Islam and began studying the way that Islam talks about God and this idea of oneness and, and divine unity and the, the inability to separate creation from creator. And then, as you, as you mentioned, the, the fact that Islam, unlike most religions of the world, doesn't have a notion that God created human beings in his image. That doesn't exist in the Quran. And that appealed to me. And then very quickly I realized, oh, 
it doesn't matter because Muslims do what everybody else does. They claim that they have no interest in humanizing God and then they describe God in these purely human terms. Uh, we really have very little choice in the matter. But again, within Islam, as in Christianity or Judaism or any other religion, there is a mystical branch that tries very hard not to do that, and that's the branch called Sufism that I began to really get drawn to. And the core of Sufism is precisely, as I had been saying before, that God is not human, that God cannot be described in human terms, that the simple dichotomies that human beings live by, good and evil, dark and light, do not apply to a being who stands above all those things. That to me was a much deeper, much more satisfying understanding of God. And so that's kind of where I've been on my spiritual journey. You could easily ask, after several disillusionments, why bother? Well, I think it goes back to the issue of understanding the difference between faith and religion. This is probably the thing I talk most about, because I think for most people, they think religion and faith are the same thing. You ask most people of faith what they believe, and they'll tell you that they believe in their religion, as though their religion is a thing to believe in, rather than a thing that points to the thing to believe in. It's the classic, you know, mistaking the road for the destination, right? <laughs> Uh, mistaking the metaphor for the thing that the metaphor represents. So for me, religion is irrelevant. Religion is nothing more than a language that helps us to express to ourselves and to each other the mystery of faith. Faith is what I'm interested in. And I think what's really fascinating to me, particularly in the, in the process of writing this book about the, the history of God, is how universal the faith impulse is, how deep into our evolutionary past it goes, how the very concept of the religious impulse predates our species by hundreds of thousands of years. And that's just according to the material evidence. You know, who knows what else we'll find? It could be even deeper than that. And the notion that what that indicates is that faith is inextricably part of the human condition, that it cannot be separated from what it means to be human, that fundamentally it is an understanding that there's more to reality than the material world, that materialism or atheism is a learned response, <laughs> that we have to be convinced to rid ourselves of our faith, that faith is something that we are born with. These are scientific facts. Now, you can go through a, a whole host of reasons of why this is the case. There are very good scientific and secular reasons why we are born this way, and there are good spiritual and religious reasons why we're born this way. But what nobody can really argue with is the fact that we're born this way. So for someone like me, I, I need to know why. You know, maybe this is how we're supposed to be. All I can say is that when I look at the world, I see more than just what my empirical senses tell me, and that I want to know what that other thing is. It doesn't matter what religion I use, but religion helps in kind of understanding that. There's a great, I believe I, I, I may have even quoted this in, in the book, but there's this sort of great quotation from the Buddha that if you want to strike water, you don't dig six one-foot wells, 
you dig one six-foot well. Islam is my six-foot well. But I think what the Buddha was trying to say was, the water that you're drinking from is the water that everybody's drinking from. The water is the only thing that matters. The well is nothing more than the tool to get to the water. So who cares? Who cares which path you take? Who cares which religion you choose? Just pick a path. Pick a well. You mentioned in college setting out on this quest to learn about and have some understanding of all the world's religions. I could see someone approaching that with, let me see why we run around the way we do, whether mindlessly or, or however you might think of it. Another approach is, which you've been describing, I think, is there is something, and we're approaching it from all these different ways. What is at the heart of this or underneath it, to use the well image? And if you're comfortable with a personal question, what things in the course of your life have made you feel that there is a God, or are there moments you felt nudged or led by, or even just in contact with that thing that's bigger than us? Well, I will admit that those feelings were stronger and and occurred more often when I was younger. (laughs) Then, you know, you get married and you have children and and suddenly, you know, long nature walks stop happening and (laughs) moments to sort of meditate and, and achieve mindfulness and unity with the universe, it becomes less and less possible. On the other hand, if I were to say what were the strongest moments in which I felt that sense of divine unity, it was moments with my family, moments with my children. So again, I think it just goes back to this notion that we are all in one way or another as human beings built to seek transcendence. But that transcendence can come in many, many forms. Certainly can come through religious experiences, but it can come through purely non-religious experiences as well. It can come through sports, it can come through nature, it can come through relationships, it can come through music. That more than anything else, I think, is an expression of how elemental a part of the human condition this striving for transcendence actually is. Because it shows up in so many aspects of our lives. And because it is the core of all religious traditions. You're right that most people, uh, most of my colleagues, many of whom started out, you know, probably fairly religious, and then they decided to study the world's religions, and then they became non-religious. Because, look, it's, there's something there. I mean, you can't study the religions of the world and still take any one of those religions all that seriously anymore. Certainly, it becomes very difficult to take any one religion's truth claims all that seriously anymore because it takes very little time to recognize that these religions are fundamentally saying the same thing. They're using different metaphors to do so, but it's the same emotion but expressed in different languages. And so the emotion must be universal. And if we can just break through that that outer shell of religion and get to that core, I think we'd be surprised at how much we all have in common with each other. Do you have personal, what you would call spiritual or religious or faith practices that help you feel more aligned with how life is or should be? Yes. Um, well, I do pray both alone and with my family, and that's, that's very important to me. It's, um, I don't pray for things, but I pray as a means of aligning myself 
with the divine. It's, a, it's hard to explain, but it's kind of a, I think of the act of being part of creation as a, as a dialogue, you know, with the creator, that creation is the divine's speech, and then my reaction to it is my speech. And, and so prayer is a part of that reaction. As far as particular rituals, as a Sufi, I do take part not as much as I used to or as much as I would like to, <laughs> again, um, in the primary Sufi ritual, which is called the vicar or a zikr. This is when we Sufis get together. We usually form a, a circle and we begin certain breathing exercises. We do certain chants, usually chanting the name of God over and over again in an attempt to sort of rid ourselves of the ego and to kind of fall into um, an awareness of our unity with the divine. And those, anyone who's been to a zikr, whether they themselves participated in it or not, can't help but walk away from that feeling as though something metaphysical just occurred. What does that word mean, zikr? It means remembrance. And that's precisely what Sufis refer to it. They, they call it, it's a moment to remember God. Um, and that shared act of collective remembrance unites us as a single body and, and makes you one with creation. Our time is limited, but I appreciate your time. I do have just a few more questions, if that's all right. One is kind of the universal question, which is, is God involved in every detail, or is God involved in no details? I have met people who went through horrible things and could not have tried harder to express their gratitude for God being there to hold on to through all, all of that, people with the same experience come out saying, there is no way I could believe in God after what I've just been through. I would never be put through that by. And is that because they're thinking of God again in a human term? Most definitely. I think it's, um, it's about putting the lens of the human condition upon a non-human being. And then, then those expectations arise. Why... You know, if there's a God, why do bad things happen? What does God have to do with bad things? You know, God is not, you know, your dad. He doesn't punish you for doing wrong things and, and give you a lollipop when you do good things. The very idea that morality is some kind of cosmic force and not just simply human decision-making, right? That good and evil are playing out in the heavens in some grand cosmic drama through which I am just a pawn instead of, no, good and evil are things that I do and for which I am solely responsible. This starts to tell you a little bit about what's wrong with this whole notion of thinking of God in, in human terms. The flip side of that, of course, is to think of God not as present or absent, but in the pantheistic notion of being all things. It's a very complicated argument. It's a, you know, and, and, you know, most pantheists would say that it's not an argument that you could even have in rational terms, that it's purely an experiential argument. But fundamentally, what we mean when we say pantheism, which is just a, a Greek word that means God is all and all is God, is that if your definition of God is as creator, and your definition of God is as a unified being, then by definition, anything that exists, exists only in so far 
as it shares in the existence of the only thing that exists. And that means everything is God and everyone is God, that all of creation is the creator, that there can be no distinction between the two. The pantheistic mindset keeps you from these kinds of dichotomies. God with us, God not with us. That doesn't make any sense. You know, God is. Just that's it. God is. You don't need to finish that sentence. Terrible things happen because terrible things happen. Wonderful things happen because wonderful things happen. People are awful. People are great. People are compassionate and violent. It has nothing to do with some cosmic force compelling us to act one way or another. I know for a lot of religious believers, this kind of talk makes them very, very uncomfortable because we do, we would rather have it be a force that's outside of our control. We want to do good because we expect some divine reward at the end. Like when my kids sit through a haircut, you know, they get a lollipop. That's basically how most religious people act. Oh, I'll just be a good person so that I get God's lollipop. If that's why you're a good person, you're doing it wrong. I just think that taking more responsibility for your own spirituality is a fundamental component in having something that is deep and meaningful and that is not tied to any particular dogma or doctrine. Over history, people had to take a long time to go anywhere or send a letter or share their ideas with people. There are religions that were centered in various places. And you could grow up and live your whole life and maybe never even met anyone outside of that experience. But with the ease of communication, the ease of travel, in your years, both as a teacher, as a writer, a thinker, a lecturer, all around, do you see a change just in your lifetime about people's thinking about God and about their thinking about other religions? Um, yes, but... You know, as a researcher, I always have to throw data into every conversation. <laughs> to me, what is, I think, the most fascinating trend when it comes to religion and spirituality is the rise of the so-called nons. This is something that people have been talking about a lot more nowadays, you know, but scholars like myself have been tracking this for about a decade now. These are people who refer to themselves as non-affiliated. So they refuse to identify with any particular religion, but they also refuse to call themselves either atheist or agnostic in the sort of, you know, parlance. It's, it's people who say they're spiritual but not religious. That number that group that we sort of just loosely refer to as the nons is by far the fastest growing religious movement, certainly in the United States, but throughout North America. And among millennials, nearly two-thirds now refer to themselves as nons. This is an incredibly important movement in spirituality. We, we're not in a place yet where we can say with some confidence what this means for the future of faith just yet. Um, we're just now starting to study this. And to be perfectly frank, <laughs> when you begin to ask people who describe themselves as nons, who say I'm spiritual but not religious, when you start to dig into that 
and you really begin to ask them specific questions to get them to frame their spirituality, they immediately revert to religious language, whatever religion they're comfortable with or whatever religion they grew up in. Do you know what I mean? They just instantly revert to that. Because again, those languages are there. They're very useful languages. They get sort of absorbed into our consciousness, and then we rely on them. But nevertheless, to me, I think that's something that both religious leaders obviously need to tackle. People are becoming less religious, but still yearning for spirituality. What are you doing as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a priest, to make sure to reach out to those people? And it's fascinating from a research perspective, because... If this really is the future of spirituality, we're talking about the disillusion and recreation of spiritual communities. So that's, that's what I'm most fascinated by when I think about what the future looks like for religion. To apply that very on the ground and very personal, you're raising children. How do you teach God or the divine Or are you still working that out? (laughs) Well, we like to call ourselves a multi-faith family. My wife is Christian. Um, We have three boys. We raise them to be spiritual, to understand the meaning of spirituality. But in the same way that we want them to be multilingual, we want them to be comfortable in the language of various religions. And we do that in many ways. We take part in different religious traditions and rituals. We go to church, we go to mosque, we've gone to zikrs together, we've, you know, we go to temple together. This last summer, we went on an 80-day journey around the world where we immersed ourselves as a family in different religious traditions and beliefs in all parts of the planet. And then we just sort of let them decide for themselves how they want to express that. One of our sons, about three years ago, declared himself to be Jewish and has taken it seriously since then. Very, still very much thinks of himself as Jewish and is deeply interested in, in Judaism. When we were in Israel, he was like, ah, my people. Um, <laughs> and then we have, I have another son who is less into it, but is you know, really fascinated by Hinduism and, and Hindu deities. And then I have another son who's too young to figure it all out just yet, but is asking some very good questions. And, you know, again, our our job is to make sure that they drink from a lot of wells and then hope that when they're ready, they'll pick their own well. Your choice of two final questions. One is with your series, Believer. I, I think, look, the experience with Believer, what I wanted to do was to take people on a journey that took me two decades to get through. I wanted them to be confronted with something that looks weird and scary and exotic and foreign. And then by watching me live it, by watching me be sort of the linguist that gives them the language necessary to unlock what's happening, to suddenly realize, okay, well, I guess that's not that weird and that's not that foreign. And frankly, I kind of do something similar to that. You know, that's been my mission in everything that I do, but certainly with that show. What should I have asked you that I don't know to ask? You know, I've I've said this before, so it's not really a secret, but this book, God of Human History, is my last religion book. Basically, you know, I I feel like I've said what I wanted to say when it comes to religious history. I'm still very deeply fascinated by religious themes, and I'm pursuing those themes in other platforms, film and television, podcasts, but also I'm going to start writing books that are less about religious figures and more about people whose religious faith 
kind of led them to do remarkable things. You ended your book, God, A Human History, about how we tend to make God in our own image backwards from the scriptural quote. But I wonder if you'd share how you end this. So then make your choice. Believe in God or not. Define God how you will. Either way, take a lesson from our mythological ancestors, Adam and Eve, and eat the forbidden fruit. You need not fear God. You are God. Reza Aslan, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. And thanks to our guest Reza Aslan for generously sharing his stories and his faith. We're grateful to Lindsay Hansen Park and the Sunstone Foundation for permitting this interview with Reza Aslan while he was their guest speaker at the 2019 Sunstone Conference in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks also to the Smith Pettit Foundation for a grant which sponsored his opening address for the conference. Find Sunstone details online at www.sunstonemagazine.com. And for a link to Reza's Sunstone address, go to our webpage, byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in Good Faith.